Chapter Forty of the Goddess of Atvatabar by William Richard Bradshaw. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Fisher. My departure from the palace of Tanjay. The week of grace allowed me to leave Atvatabar had already expired ere it had even occurred to me to actually leave the palace. The commotion in the nation consequent on the publication of the manifesto of king and goddess was so great and the necessity of advising Leone in the crisis so urgent, that I did not take leave of her until the time for my departure was exhausted. One thing that made me somewhat careless of arousing the royal danger was that the polar king, with her terrorite guns, could command Kioram in spite of the royal fleet, although it numbered one hundred vessels. Fortunately, the royal fleet had not yet learned the use of gunpowder, their guns being discharged with compressed air. A dispatch from Captain Wallace stated that the ship was lying in the outer harbour, well equipped either for a long voyage or probable hostilities. With a view to allaying the excitement of the people, the king published a statement that the alien commander and his retinue had been ordered to leave forthwith. As for Leone, the crisis had in no wise terrified her. She felt assured, however, that the beginning of the end had come. "'Are you not afraid of lifelong imprisonment or death in case your cause has no supporters?' I asked. "'They can do me no harm,' she replied. For the entire priesthood of Egyplosis, the art palace of Naphistasia, and thousands of sympathisers among the people themselves will rally to my flag when the hour of danger comes. You can depend upon my operations at sea, said I, in your behalf, although I have but a single vessel. I will fight the entire fleet of Atvatbar. One shell of terrorite has more power than a thousand of their guns. I will destroy Kioram if need be to bring the king to submission. Before leaving Leone, I drew up a plan of campaign for the coming struggle. Hushnoli, the high priest, although conservative as regards the affairs of the priesthood, was really a trusty friend of the goddess and would assist the grand sorcerer in commanding a wing of the sacred army. The liberated priests and priestesses would fight like lions for the cause for which they had been imprisoned. The palace of Nathisthasia would also furnish its battalions, led by Yermul, lord of art. Then, among the fifty millions of people, there were perhaps twenty millions in favour of reform, who would contribute a large army in support of Leone. It is by no means certain that a civil war will take place, even to secure the proposed reform, said Leone. The people may leave it to the barodomy and the law to settle the matter. And what would be the result in such a case, I inquired. Well, if I persisted in my demands and no insurrection took place, said Leone, the king might put me to death as the simplest way of ending the matter, and appoint another goddess in Egyplosis. They will never hurt a hair of your head while I live. I swear it, said I, with considerable emphasis. Leone smiled at my enthusiasm, and refused to permit me to linger longer with her. We understood each other perfectly. I saw that when Leone had once made up her mind on a certain course, there could be no retreat. She cared not any longer for a dead throne, for even the worship of the multitude could not feed her famished heart. She must have a beloved soul, consecrated to herself alone, between whom would vibrate the music of great thoughts and tender emotions. Leone had declared war upon hopeless love. This was a necessary consequence of her altered position. Egyplosis, founded on a brilliant theory, had in practice become a prison, and she must open the doors to let its prisoners free. Just as I was leaving the palace, I received a message from Hushnoli stating that the king had secretly ordered my arrest and to be circumspect if I wished to reach Kioram free. Attended by a guard of Bokakids faithful to Leone, I set out for Kioram, taking a circuitous route to avoid Kalnagur. 
I had been informed by Hushnoli that mobs of excited and bloodthirsty whaleels were flying around the metropolis, shouting death to the foreigners. Mounted on a magnificent, majestic steed of great power, I led my little band at a furious pace. The Bokakids, with each stride of their leg, covered a distance of sixty feet and could easily travel seventy miles an hour without appearing to run very quickly. About an hour's travelling brought us abreast of Kalnagur, and soon afterward I heard shots fired and the noise of conflict. Making an aerial detour, I discovered a combat between a dozen whaleels on one side and a crowd of whaleels on the other. I noticed that as fast as the individuals of the larger body were fired at by a weapon in the hands of the smaller company, they at once became lifeless, either falling to the ground or hanging limp in the air supported by their still vibrating wings. Being intensely curious to see the whaleels using revolvers, I ventured with my men nearer the melee, and, coming near the flying warriors, I discovered to my surprise and horror that the smaller band of flying men was a company of my own sailors, led by Flat Hootley, fighting back to back a swarming mass of whaleels. The brave fellows fought like lions. No sooner did a whaleel approach a sailor with his deadly spear than he was shot. My men, fighting such fearful odds, for the enemy numbered several hundreds, could not long maintain so unequal a combat, notwithstanding the superiority of their weapons. It was only a question of time when their ammunition would be exhausted, and their spears would then be their only weapon, and I had evidently arrived in time to relieve them. Flatutli was shouting to the enemy, Stand back, or I'll shoot yous! When I approached, the sailors cheered to see me flying to their relief, and at that moment the enemy, recognising in me the very man they wanted, swarmed around to prevent my escape. My kids drew their spears, and the sailors used their revolvers fiercely, forming a flying ring effectually protected me from the onslaught of the king's whaleels. I rallied my entire company, who received the rush of whaleels with a discharge of revolvers and magnet spears, by means of which we killed several. Again and again the enemy fell upon us with renewed fury, shouting their war cry of Bulmakar! They evidently meant to harass us until reinforced by a detachment of the royal troops strong enough to capture us. A whaleel, in an unguarded moment, struck me on the shoulder. Fortunately, only with one point of his spear, drawing blood. Flatutli, who saw the blow, emptied his revolver in his breast, and he fell to earth a dead man. I was surprised that the enemy had not already annihilated my men, for, notwithstanding their fear of the sailors' revolvers, three of the sailors had been killed. It was terrible news to think of my brave fellows being slaughtered, but I was determined to have revenge. I singled out Gosodi, the leader of the Whaleels, and, rushing forward on my Bokakid, aimed at his head with my revolver, and instantly killed him. The death of their leader paralysed the Whaleels for a time. Before they could recover from their surprise, we killed a number of them. The enemy, once more rallying, made a fresh attack. They hoped to either kill or capture us by sheer force of superior numbers. We killed dozens of them, but at a fearful cost. Six of the Bokakids and three more of our own sailors bit the dust. It was quite evident that it would be only a question of time before we would be completely annihilated. I saw that it was necessary for us to reach Kioram without further fighting. We could not afford to risk the life of another man, even to gain a complete victory. I therefore ordered a flying retreat. The Bokakids were arranged in a circle, in the midst of which flew our sailors. We struck out for Kioram with the speed of the wind, pursued by an ever-increasing horde of whaleels thirsting for our blood. Such was our speed of motion that the thrusts of the enemy were ineffectual. It was a magnificent sight to see the giant machines, like flying cranes, devouring distance with their wings, each ridden by a winged warrior. Wearied and exhausted with our fight and still longer period of flight, 
it was a welcome sight to see beneath us the city of Kioram and the polar king riding at anchor in the outer harbour, beyond which lay the royal navy of Atvatbar. When within sight of the city, the enemy unexpectedly gave up the chase and did not follow us further. We soon gained the ship, and in a short time our Boca kids decorated the masts and rigging. The story of my imprisonment and the massacre of the six sailors of the force sent to escort me to Kioram was soon told, and a more determined crew never trod the deck of ship of war. We would teach Bull Makar a lesson he would never forget. End of chapter 40